This is the Blaze Radio On Demand. The experts at Web.com want to build your business a successful website for free, just like we did for these current Web.com customers. We've used and and looked at other website designers, but there's nobody better than Web.com. Web.com can build your website in as little as seven days free. Plus, we'll promote it on all the major search engines like Google, Yahoo, and Bing. If after 30 days you're happy, we'll continue to provide promotion, hosting, support, and maintenance, all for one low monthly fee. If not, cancel and pay nothing. If you're in business today and you don't have a web presence, you won't be taken seriously. Call right now and you'll also get a free .com or .net domain name for your new website powered by VeriSign, the world's leading domain name provider. Call 800-490-1099 or go to web.com slash radio. That's 800-490-1099. No upfront charge for site build, after which ongoing fees apply. Rights to site are relinquished when canceled. Domain included during active service, after which fees apply. The more the world changes, the more we find comfort in things that never change. This is Rabbi Daniel Lappin On Demand on the Blaze Radio Network. Welcome, everybody, and thank you for being part of the Rabbi Daniel Lappin Show, where, as you know, I, Rabbi Daniel Lappin, that's me, your rabbi, solemnly dedicate myself to revealing for you how the world really works. And one of the ways the world really works is that you are able to function more effectively if you are in possession of relevant data. And so when data is concealed from you, You should always wonder who benefits from that. Why is that happening when distorted data is supplied to you or when it becomes extremely difficult to obtain relevant information? Uh, In all of these situations, you should regard yourself as having been forewarned. Uh, These are all red signs indicating proceed with great caution. And I want to give you an example of that right away. I'm sure that you have heard, um, as we all have, incessantly, whether it's the mayor of New York or somebody on the uh, city council in Los Angeles, those are just two of the most recent sources for me recently, but I've heard it from from many, many people, uh, including, by the way, a politician from Chicago, if you don't mind. What is it? Cheers and jubilation at how the murder rate has been going down. And this is intended to make you think, wow, what a great job the political leadership is doing, or what a great job the policing is doing. After all, law enforcement is managing to push down the murder rate. How wonderful is that? And I thought this warranted some investigation. Well, it wasn't very difficult to discover that this is not at all the case. And while I'm giving you one example, I want you to remember the main point that I'm making in this segment of the show is that information gets gobbled deliberately. Uh, Very often, people who are in power or people who want to secure power in your life, will utilize data that has either been selectively 
plucked or has been massaged in order to reveal different information or has been uh, downright uh, deceit involved and uh, you're being provided with information that is quite useless for your purposes. And so just one example I want to give you is the uh, question of the murder rate. Oh, it's going down, it's going wonderful, and you know, there are all kinds of reasons. Some of it is uh, effective political leadership. That's the usual one, by the way. Uh, Sometimes it's better law enforcement. We hear less of that one lately. And, uh, And sometimes, how's about this one for creativity? Well, the baby boomers are getting older, and uh, there are fewer people in the population bulge. You see, the majority of violent crime is committed by males between the ages of 12 and 35. And so if there are fewer people in that age group, well, it results in in fewer murders. Well, that uh, may well be true. However, when you work the numbers, which I did, I sharpened my pencil and worked the numbers, and I found that uh, although there is a slight drop in the population of males between the age of uh, 12 and 35, uh, as now as compared to the uh, 70s, the 80s, the 90s, uh, actually not according to the, not the not 70s, but the 80s and 90s, it's nowhere near enough to account for the claims of vastly lower murder rates. So what is it? And my friends, you know, I think so highly of you. Apart from anything else, I, uh, I approve the uh, ability you have to discriminate good quality from bad. After all, you're listening to this show. But um, I know that if I gave you a few moments, as I might do in a live audience, and say, think about this for a moment, what do you think could be some other explanations? I know that uh, many of you, if not most of you, would probably get this one right. Do you know what it is? <laughs> it's, it's very simple. It's improvements in emergency medicine. It is the uh, streamlining of the 911 system. It is the uh, very rapid stabilization and transport of trauma patients or trauma victims. Um, It's the skill level of EMTs, and above all, it is the increased ability of uh, trauma teams and ER teams or emergency room or emergency department teams to save lives that only a few years ago would not have been saved. The, The victims would have been killed. So this is this is really, really interesting because what it means is that nowadays, and I'm, I'm looking at, and there's an enormous amount of data, you know one thing, and that is that if, if there is any area where incredibly detailed data is kept and stored and made available, it's uh, Americans, America's medical health system. And, um, and so what we know is that whereas a few years ago, um, somebody would come in, be brought in, and would die under the uh, operate on the die on the operating table. Today, that same patient, in other words, patient with the same age, gender, wounds, health status, 
that same patient gets discharged after a few days and walks out. Now, look at the effect that has on the asylum. A few years ago, that asylum who put him in the hospital was up for murder. And now, simple assault. And so, the truth is, that if one wants to see what has really happened to violent crime in America, the murder rate isn't good enough anymore because our doctors and emergency rooms are so amazing. And that in most cities, the speed with which a victim finds himself in the emergency room is much faster than it used to be. And the talent of the EMT people in the ambulance on the way to the hospital keeping him alive and the abilities uh, of the um, of the technical and medical abilities of the hospital when he gets there yes people who were murder victims a few years ago today walk out of the hospital on their own feet it's pretty amazing as a matter of fact if we went back and let's you know let's let's look at 50 years if we if we looked at the the mid 60s to the present because as you know when I when I speak about the uh, the way in which America has become indescribably more squalid and more expensive and more dangerous, I I look at everything as having changed somewhere around about the mid sixties. And again, as I've often explained, uh, my disclaimer is that when you're dealing with sociological trends like this. Uh, there is no one instant, there's no one time on a certain day at which everything changed. You know, people like to say that uh, in November 63, when uh, Kennedy was assassinated, oh, everything changed, or little Martin Luther King, oh, everything changed, or uh, 9-11, oh, everything changed that Tuesday morning in September 2001. Well, yeah, travel changed, that's for sure, and, and, and a number of other things obviously changed militarily and so on, but uh, everything changed. No, no, there is no one moment at which everything changes. But uh, but the um, the early 60s, 62, 64, 65, somewhere in that period of the early to mid 60s, that's a pretty good point to look at uh, as a point in which America changed. And um, and so if we if we look at a baseline over the last 50 years or so, uh, what we actually have today in murders is about 60 to 70,000 murders a year. Now, if you actually look it up, you'll find that uh, we have about uh, roughly 15 to 20,000 murders a year. And they say, look, it's fantastic because this is down from what it was in the 1980s. Yeah, what's changed is the medicine, not the murder rate. If you look at, if you now look at the people, in other words, you do the entire medical analysis, and I obviously don't have the, the medical knowledge to do this, but it's been done by Harvard and uh, University of Massachusetts at Amherst, uh, and the figures are absolutely compelling. And by the way, these are organizations that uh, are only looking at it from a medical point of view. They have no political axe to grind at all. But uh, what they're saying is now, looking at the number of patients who come into the emergency room, with injuries inflicted by another person deliberately, person probably intended to murder the victim, and who would have died a few years ago, but today, because of the speed with which he was brought in and the 
the the superb treatment he got upon being brought in he survived but he would have died a few years ago uh, that figure in in other words in real times now in terms now 60 to 70,000 homicides is what we actually should be thinking of because um, you know maybe 15 to 20,000 of them actually die the remainder would have and the intention of the assailant was certainly to do so so when people tell you oh everything's wonderful and it's all everything's proceeded so well and we've got a big drop in the rate of homicides this is an example of something you need to take another look at this is simply not true the condition of crime in america is appalling don't let anybody tell you of how wonderful it is and how what a big improvement we've seen it's not the case at all not the case we should really not be watching the murder rate we should be taking a look at the assault rate and the truth is it's much harder to get that information partially i will tell you that many police departments around the country methodically underreport that and suppress that uh, because they understand that that's really the best indicator of the condition of lawlessness in their community and so it's somewhat more difficult to get that information but it is available and when you get it and you watch the climb of violent assault in america there is indeed considerable room for concern now uh, you know this this show is available to you uh, for free i mean right there on itunes or on soundcloud or however you listen to it uh, which is terrific but uh, the only thing is that uh, i ask two things in return uh, the one is i ask you to help promote the show because if you feel it has enough value to invest a little of your time in it then there are other people who would benefit just as you do i mean obviously if you don't find it useful then i wouldn't ask you to try and lure anybody else into a gigantic waste of time naturally but if you do find it useful please take uh, another moment of your time and send a, uh, a URL, send the SoundCloud URL uh, to a few friends and just tell them you find it useful because nothing has the value of the personal recommendation of somebody you trust. Uh, and so if somebody who knows you and likes you and trusts you gets a recommendation, say, hey, you should listen to the Rabbi Daniel Lappin show, uh, that is a very valuable endorsement. So I appreciate that, and, um, and, and it would be fantastic if you could take care of that. I appreciate that. And the second thing I ask is that uh, from time to time you visit my website at rabbidaniellappin.com, and over there you head over to the store. And take a look because, you know, from time to time we're adding new resources all the time. And they're always resources for practical purpose. These are resources that are designed to bring you information that can dramatically transform your lives in areas of family, friendships, uh, faith, finance. Um, uh, yeah. <laughs> Uh, all of those areas. So, and those are the main ones. In other words, you will never find on our uh, website uh, resources on gardening. That you won't find. Uh, you won't find resources on uh, makeup and cosmetics. That's just not what we do. But we are very good at what we do do, which is bring you ancient Jewish wisdom. 3,000 years of spiritual strategies for improving one's life in the areas of uh, money, 
relationships with other human beings, both family and social, and relationships with God. Quick break, and uh, I will be right back with, uh, if you've ever wondered why Shakespeare is quite as amazing as, as he really is. In other words, you know, maybe you're not a person with a big enthusiasm for the writings of William Shakespeare. And after all, I mean, how many people today really pull down from the shelf uh, you know, a, a King Lear and say, I, I think I'm going to go in for a little light bedtime reading this evening. Uh, it's it's unusual. But even if the last time you ever looked at Shakespeare was at college, or maybe you never did, there is something about a body of writing that has existed for 400 years. And I want to contrast it with a body of information and, and yes, and also writing um, that has existed for about 50 years. And uh, here we go, back again to the 60s uh, or thereabouts. And um, I will contrast those two in a way that uh, I think you might find helpful. I'm your rabbi, Rabbi Daniel Lappin, back with you in a moment. Ancient solutions to modern problems. This is Rabbi Daniel Lappin, on demand on the Blaze Radio Network. If you're in the market for a new mattress, casper.com slash rabbi should be the next website you visit. Casper created an obsessively engineered mattress at a shockingly fair price. It's one perfect mattress, and it's sold directly to you, eliminating the need to endure one of those commission salesman mattress stores with inflated prices. Casper is shipped for free right to your door, astonishingly delivered in a sleek, how-did-it-fit-in-there box. You just let it unfold, and there you have it, one of the most supportive sleep surfaces ever designed, hassle-free. Casper is made in America, and Time magazine named it one of the best inventions of 2015. Breathable latex and memory foams are combined for just the right sink and just the right bounce. Try Casper for 100 nights free, and if you don't love it, they'll pick it up and refund you everything. Right now, get $50 towards any mattress purchase by visiting casper.com slash rabbi. That's casper.com promo code rabbi. Terms and conditions apply. casper.com slash rabbi. With stories in the areas of family, friendship, faith, and finance, this is Rabbi Daniel Lappin. Only on the Blaze Radio Network On Demand. Here we are back again together, the Rabbi Daniel Lappin Show. And uh, I said I was going to tell you something from Shakespeare. And I'm, I'm looking at uh, Shakespeare's tragedy, King Lear. Now, uh, am I trying to encourage you to read the play? Um, not necessarily, only because I know how valuable your time is. And, uh, and reading the play with the command of English that most of us have today uh, would be incredibly difficult. But um, there are guidebooks, and, uh, and there are um, books that assist you. And so if you do have any interest... Um, I I would definitely say don't just try and read King Lear. It's it's grueling, and you're not going to be able to to get most of the the benefit. We all need uh, some sort of guide that that takes English of 400 years ago and uh, helps us understand exactly what's going on. But allow me, if you will, what I want to do is I want to read just one paragraph, and. Uh, and I'll read it through once just as it's written, and then I'll read it through once again uh, with a little bit of 
background and explanation. Okay? Uh, so, first of all, to set the scene, uh, the Duke of Gloucester has two sons, a, a natural real son, Edgar, and he has an illegitimate son called Edmund. And uh, as you can imagine, uh, in, in those days, the life of um, anyone but the older son wasn't that nice because the older son usually um, inherited the title and the, the castle and the wealth. Uh, but here is a second son who's not only not just a, re- not a first son, he's a, he's a second son, but he's an illegitimate second son. And what is more, his father, the Duke of Gloucester, often uh, denigrates him in public, um, speaking about the fact that uh, his mother was, was just a, a hooker, really. And, uh, and he says, and while we had fun making him, uh, you know, he is, after all, uh, nothing but a bastard. And uh, But I'm a good guy because even though he's a bastard, I recognize him, I acknowledge him as my son. And this sort of goes on. And as you can imagine, it probably gets tired really quickly. But Edmund uh, has to listen to his father doing this sort of thing. So naturally, uh, he's not too crazy about his dad or his brother. And Edmund is a sort of um, theme that runs through this entire play. Uh, you'll remember the basic story of of King Lear is that um, he he's a foolish king and he wants to he's got three daughters and he can't tell the difference between uh, the the daughters that uh, don't really care for him and the one daughter that does and uh, the reason is it's one of his, of Shakespeare's tragedies is because the the story ends tragically but the point is that it reveals a whole lot about how the world really works. That's my point. And so, in other words, if if your interest is gaining deeper understanding, further insight into how the world really works, uh, is your time better spent uh, reading a Harlequin romance? Or actually, actually, that just slipped out of my mouth right there. And having done so... Um, it probably behooves me to to just take uh, a moment or two. <laughs> I should have really said something like, uh, um, you know, uh, uh, something something quite different, <laughs> um, because from the Harlequin romances that I have studied, and and yes, I have actually studied them. Uh, I've noticed that there is a certain pattern that emerges. And it shows up again and again. Now, I haven't read dozens or even lots, but I've certainly looked at a few, and every now and then I pick one up because I always want to verify that what women are buying in huge numbers um, always fits the same pattern. Let me tell you what it is. Uh, The guy is always rich. He's always got more money than the woman. I have yet now, look, I'm not an expert on Harlequin romances, but I've yet to see a Harlequin romance where uh, the uh, the heroine doesn't fall in love with us. And, the, you know, the pattern's always the same, this unattainable guy who's got these incredible qualities. And uh, and then eventually, through much kind, much travail and, uh, and, and considerable sexual activity, uh, finally she wins him and they marry and they have children and live happily ever after. That's the pattern every time. Marriage is important. Having children is important. 
and that the guy has a few dollars, well, yes, that is important. So I'm, I'm sorry to say, but not that a Holoquin romances are a guide to how the world really works in any sort of deep and ongoing sense. I wouldn't go as far as to say that, no. But what I will say is <clears throat> that uh, they certainly do um, reveal something of, of reality. And, uh, and yes, and that is that money is important in romance, and that is precisely why I'm working hard on a new book all about money and marriage, the intersection uh, between those two things. So uh, I gave a bad example there, but, um, but you know, to, to take uh, an absurd example, if you really do want to read something that is going to give you greater wisdom in dealing with other people, uh, something that's going to teach you more about how the world really works. Would you read a comic book or would you read Shakespeare? Now, those are two far extremes, obviously, but the answer should be evident and obvious. And if it isn't, then I want you to listen to the passage I'm going to read. And this is now Edmund. And it's, it's you know, Edmund is, is not a, a good guy. I mean, he, uh, he, he, he does some pretty mean things. But he, he remains in the story all the way to the end. And there's a sort of redemption at the end. So um, because Shakespeare is so true to life, uh, people are complex. There are no two-dimensional characters. And so to sort of immediately write Edmund off as a good guy or a bad guy, uh, is as challenging as it is to to call yourself, you know, are you a good person or a bad person? Well, you know, most of us aren't at, at either end of that morality spectrum. Um, you know, most of us try and do good things, and every now and then we, we, we slip and we do something we're not proud of. Everybody's like that. So, um, so we can't really label Edmund. But there is considerable self-awareness there. And uh, he knows exactly who he is. So take a listen to this. Uh, I said I'll read it one time, and then I'll go back and read it with the explanation. <clears throat> uh, okay, this is Edmund talking, and, uh, uh, and by the way, it's in Act 1, Scene 2. So it's, it's pretty much early at the play. It's really part of our introduction to Edmund. We're getting to know Edmund here. And he says, This is the excellent foppery of the world, that when we are sick in fortune... Often the surfeit of our own behavior, we make guilty of our disasters, the sun, the moon, and the stars, as if we were villains by necessity, fools by heavenly compulsion, knaves, thieves, and treacherers by spherical predominance, drunkards, liars, and adulterers by an enforced obedience of planetary influence. And all that we are evil in by a divine thrusting on. An admirable evasion of warmaster man. To lay his goatish disposition to the charge of a star. My father compounded with my mother under the dragon's tail. And my nativity was under Ursa Major. So that it follows I am rough and lecherous. Ach, I should have been that I am had the maidenliest star in the firmament twinkled on my bastardizing. <laughs> it's, it's, it's pretty amazing stuff. Okay, let's, let's do it again this time, and I'll, I'll stop after each phrase and, um, and just explain 
uh, how I understand it. Edmund again. This is the excellent foppery of the world, that when we are sick in fortune, often the surfeit of our own behavior. Okay. Um, this is typical, says Edmund, of, of how stupid everything is in the world. When we're down on our fortune, when things are not going well for us, often because of our own behavior, or the excesses of our own behavior. All right, onwards back to the Edmund in the text. We make guilty of our disasters, the sun, the moon, and the stars, as if we were villains by necessity. So we end up putting all the blame for our condition, which we've usually brought in ourselves. We blame the sun, the moon, the astrology, the stars, um, as if they forced us to be bad. Fools by heavenly compulsion, or as if the heavens compelled us to, to behave badly. Knaves, thieves, and treacherous by spherical predominance, as if we become thieves and traders and bad people according to astrological signs or, or, or spherical predominance, spheres meaning the planets, so sort of planetary influences. Back to the text, drunkards, liars, and adulterers by an enforced obedience of planetary influence, um, as if we become what we are, drunks, liars, adulterers, etc., um, because of uh, outside forces. And all that we are evil in by a divine thrusting on. And as if some sort of dark universal power pushes us into doing evil deeds. Back to the text. An admirable evasion of whoremaster man to lay his goatish disposition to the charge of a star. What, a, a, what I think he's saying is what an, a clever way it is for concupiscent man to lay his pursuit of sex to the to some astrological sign, some external influence, some outside thing. Not my fault. Shakespeare again, my father compounded with my mother under the dragon's tail, and my nativity was under Ursa Major. Uh, my mother and father uh, had intercourse under some kind of uh, demonic sign, and my birth came about when I was I was born in the, under the sign of the Big Dipper. So that it follows, I am rough and lecherous, says Shakespeare. So it's inevitable that I'm uh, rude and uh, uncaring towards people and lecherous. But he says, I should have been that I am had the maidenliness star in the firmament twinkled on my bastardizing. He says, look, let's face it. I would have been just what I am, even if the most virginal star in the heavens had twinkled at my conception. <laughs> it's, it's pretty good stuff, you know. He's, he's putting a finger on something that each and every one of us not only feels an attraction for, something that draws us, but forces in our environment tend to lead us in this self-destructive pattern. What am I talking about? 
Let me tell you that coming right back. The website, rabbidaniellappin.com. Um, now, I usually say you need a rabbi.com as well, but that doesn't seem to be working properly. We're dealing with a technical problem at the moment, I'm afraid. But um, rabbidaniellappin.com is the uh, the website. Take a look at the store and uh, see. You can look at it by area of interest, relationships with people, family, friends, and so on. You can look under finance. Uh, you can look under uh, uh, faith areas, but whatever you happen to be interested in, see if there is a resource of mine that can make a difference in your life. A uh, quick break, back with you in just a moment. There's still more to come from Rabbi Daniel Lappin On Demand on the Blaze Radio Network. Stupid internet stuff. Huh. Click here for free. Oh, I got a virus. Smart internet stuff. They might be deported by either back to Japan or back to Guam. Um, anybody see the failure of that clip? Anybody? Uh, uh, Professor Thompson here, here. <laughs> I'm pretty sure, huh? based on my knowledge of geography, right, right. Guam is uh-huh. part of the United States. Yes, American territory. That's right. Guamanians are Americans. Ta-da! The Morning Blaze with Doc Thompson. Weekdays, 6 to 9 a.m. Eastern on the Blaze Radio Network. We now return with Rabbi Daniel Lappin On Demand on the Blaze Radio Network. Hi, everybody. And it is the Rabbi Daniel Lappin Show where I reveal for you how the world really works. And the only reason that I do it is because you're there. And uh, without listeners, it would be very difficult indeed. Look, do you find art galleries tiring? Have you ever noticed, don't you sometimes come out of an art gallery um, or a, a museum even? Now, if you know, it may be a museum about something you're interested in, or it might be an art gallery featuring an exhibit by an artist you're interested in. But in general, many of us come out of an art gallery or museum feeling somewhat exhausted. And it's a common mistake to assume that, oh, this is because I was so deeply moved and the profound experience I underwent had this tiring effect on my psyche. No, it isn't that at all. It's that um, when you are constantly being spoken at and you're not being given any opportunity to respond that is, it's an unnatural human experience, and it's a tiring human experience as a result. You know how it is sometimes, and I don't know if you've ever had this situation. Um, Mrs. Lappin and I had house guests a little while back where uh, where this experience did happen. And um, and no, don't try and figure out who it was. Uh, we, we, we conceal their identity, but they were exhausting because they didn't shut up, not once. And not once did they utter the magic words, what do you think? Or what's your opinion? Or what's your view on this? Not once did they utter those magic words. Magic words because you elicit all kinds of enthusiasms and passions when you actually say to somebody, what do you think? What's your opinion? What's your view? Um, you must have thought about this. What's your, what, what is your uh, uh, result? But when you invite somebody to participate in communication, uh, you get all kinds of magic and passion flowing from that. And uh, an art gallery or a museum, nothing at all. 
nothing at all. Um, you're you're receiving a lot of stuff, but at no point are you asked to respond. Now, if you go with somebody and you talk about it afterwards, that helps a little bit. But during the time you are wandering the floors of the museum or the art gallery, it can be very tiring. Now, you know, you might be an unusual person and uh, you don't experience that. You, you might find it very energizing. But for most of us, art galleries and museums can be tiring experiences because being spoken to and never having an opportunity to, uh, to respond is uh, quite exhausting, quite grueling. Now, by contrast, speaking is very seductive. Talking away utterly uh, unaware and oblivious of the fact that people around you are losing interest, uh, now that is energizing. People like talking. And who do people like talking about? What is our favorite topic? Me. Love talking about me, myself, my interests. Yes, it's, it's almost inevitable that we all really do like talking about ourselves. We do. We talk about your church and your head when it hurts. We talk about the troubles you've been having with your brother, about your daddy and your mother and your crazy ex-lover. We talk about your friends and the places that you've been. We talk about your That's right. And we realize that it's in bad taste to talk about yourself all the time. That's right. That was, <laughs> was that big Toby Keith hit of a few years ago. I want to talk about me. And he hit the nail on the head. Of course, we all want to talk about me, but we all realize that uh, doing so incessantly is in thoroughly bad taste and uh, will quickly strip our uh, reservoir of friendship from uh, of all participants without without any hesitation. And uh, and so we we try and make our lives a balance. And we also learn that one of the the great triggers of communication is what do you think? What is your opinion? Uh, in negotiations, I always teach the, the necessity after the other side has made its point, before you, in, in, before you proceed and say, but, well, I just want you know, you know what we need. Now, before you do any of that, one of the best things to do is to say, let me just make sure I understand what you said is what you said that, and go ahead and repeat the point that the other side has just made. It's so disarming, and it's so relationship-building, right? What do you think? What's your view? What's your opinion? I'm sure you've thought about it. These sorts of phrases have magic in them. And, uh, and again, mature human beings discover that relationships are a, uh, a combination of giving and receiving, handing out, taking in, and and you switch backwards and forwards, one person playing each role and then the other person playing the other role and vice versa, backwards and forwards you go, and that's what a communication actually sounds like. But um, But it can be tiring to just have to take in, to just have to listen all the time. By contrast, 
Conversely, in the same way that is grueling and tiring and frankly unpleasant um, to be spoken at and being forced to keep quiet and be spoken at all the time. By the way, some people just zone out. And then that's a good way to survive. You just zone out and the person drones away. You haven't heard a thing the person says. But uh, ordinarily, that's not that easy to do. <laughs> Are you concentrating? Are you hearing what I'm saying? <laughs> but um, by conversely, uh, the opposite is also true. In other words, if being spoken at is very grueling and exhausting, then speaking is energizing, isn't it? And sure enough, it absolutely is. And that's one of the reasons I often tell people uh, that it's far easier to give a speech than it is to listen to one, because giving a speech is energizing in and of itself. You're doing the talking, the receiving and sitting. And, and, and so to give a speech that people want to listen to and enjoy listening to is very hard. It's really not something that uh, that certainly didn't come easily to me. So... Uh, uh, I mean, I had teachers, people who trained me and so on, and there's a lot to know, but it's not automatic. Anyways, if that's the case, then talking and talking about yourself would be really one of the most pleasant and indulgent things. And sure enough, I think all of us uh, would have to honestly concede that talking about ourselves is interesting. Right. If you're if if you're <laughs> if you're sitting around a table with some friends and they say, well, tell us your life story. Oh, wouldn't you enjoy that? Wouldn't you, wouldn't you be ready to go for the next two hours? Right. I think I think most people would or or, uh, you know, people sit back in their chairs and look at you and they say, uh, so what do you think? You know, or, uh, we're we're having an election or we just had an election. You know, what's your opinion? <laughs> And I think what a lot of people found <laughs> during election time is that everybody has opinions. And as much as you want to tell yours, everyone wants to give theirs as well, because that's what it's all about. But if you get a chance to talk about you, that's very refreshing. And um, and about 50 years ago, approximately, one of the things that changed in American life is that instead of being focused on, if you like, the Shakespeare approach. Instead of being focused on learning things from the Bible, from Shakespeare, from the McGuffey readers, if you were in middle school, or, but all of these books share something in common, which is that not only do they speak about how the world really works, but at the same time, they are forcing you to evaluate your behavior in the context of how the world works. So the last thing on earth you want to do with a child, right? You're raising a child. Would you really want to constantly affirm to that child that everything the child does is just wonderful and just fine? Everything is perfect, nothing to work. Uh, no, I don't think you'd want to do that. I think you'd want to tell the child where they're wrong. I think you'd want to discipline the child. I think you'd want to explain the consequences of the behavior that the child is indulging in. But something that happened uh, around about 50 years ago is the beginning of the evolution of the mental health industry in America. And it's come very, very fast since those days. But again, not to paint with overly broader brush, and, uh, and this is a generalization. And yes, I, uh, I have encountered uh, therapists who have been helpful, but it's very rare, very rare. 
look, I'll put it bluntly. If you are in your second year or fifth year or 11th year or 19th year of therapy, you're being ripped off. That's all there is to it. You are paying for the luxury of speaking about you. And that's, it's almost, you think of it, it's like it's a form of uh, buying a prostitute, isn't it? You're paying somebody to let you do what you really want to do, which is talk about you. And that is the entire field of psychiatry, psychoanalysis, and therapy uh, that, that has become so important today and so big that it's a major part of Obamacare is paying for this kind of stuff, which is why it's so unfair that people cannot pick their different kinds of insurance companies for the different kinds of coverage they want. Right? If I'd be perfectly happy to go with an insurance, medical insurance coverage that does not cover for um, therapy and and counseling, I'd be perfectly happy, and it'll be a lot less expensive. The premiums would be way down. But uh, as things stand at the time I'm doing this recording, that's not an option in America because of Obamacare. Hopefully, uh, I, I hope at any rate that that'll be dramatically rolled back and all that'll be changed. But um, but not only does psychoanalysis and therapy not only are you paying you know, $90 an hour, or if you happen to be living in one of the coastal big cities, $300 an hour, not only are you paying to talk about yourself, but even more importantly, you're paying to have you reaffirmed. You are paying to have you validated. And so um, almost everything that you're going to hear in that situation is um, – it validates your evasion of personal responsibility. Nothing is your fault. I remember a number of years ago, a cover story came out in Newsweek magazine. Infidelity! It's genetic! Well, yeah, I guess it is. I'm a man. Uh, but the whole point is that uh, we are meant as, as moral human beings to rise above nature famous line that Catherine Hepburn playing the missionary lady in uh, African Queen movie from the 50s says to the character played by Humphrey Bogart, she says, nature, Mr. Nutley, is precisely what we were put into this world to rise above. And uh, worth seeing the movie just for that line. It's uh, it's lovely. and uh, But it's exactly right. That's the point. And so we... I, Large numbers of people go to therapy to find out what that uh, the, the 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 blame for whatever situation they're in is always it's their parents, uh, it's their childhood, their school they went to, it's genetic, it's the neurochemistry, whatever's happening is because of a chemical imbalance. They just need the right tablets, uh, whatever it is. It's never me. It's always outside circumstances, just as Shakespeare had Edmund saying, it's the stars, it's the planets. And, uh, and uh, although these days people won't be likely to blame astrological uh, influences, the fact is that uh, we are being trained by the mental health industry today uh, to blame absolutely everything but ourselves. And uh, and that really is an enormous difference 
an enormous difference in uh, the way that things used to be done up till about the 1960s, where people were trained, and we all knew, hey, you know what, you're complicit in your own misfortune. This isn't uh, racism, it's not anti-Semitism, it's not sexism, it's not this, that, or the other. It's none, no, it's up to you. Get your life fixed up. Do it. Go ahead and do what you've got to do. Stop doing destructive things. Start doing the things you're supposed to be doing. But now all of that is dramatically changed. Everything is different. And now analysis or therapy or all of these things um, are, are based on, on an ever-growing body of disease. And that's I've spoken about this in the past. Uh, the DSM is now up to, uh, I think, fourth or fifth edition. Each edition is double the size of the preceding one. And each one lists all the various new diseases, all the new mental conditions. In other words, if you gamble, you gamble away the household money. You know why that is? It's because you have an addiction disease and you need tablets to cure you. Um, if you... Uh, if, if you are Anthony Weiner, who destroys his life, his career, his marriage, and who knows how he even harms his young child, uh, and you know why? All that? Because he has a sex addiction. All he needs is some treatment, and uh, he goes into a, uh, uh, a uh, therapy rehabilitation program, and well, good, solved, the problem is over. But the idea that things we do, we do because of a character defect, because we lack willpower, because we lack self-discipline, even overeating, by the way, right? When I eat too much, it's not because I didn't have the willpower to stop and, you know, not have third helpings. <laughs> it's because I have a food addiction. Everything has been reduced, to a quasi-scientific view that has stripped away all sense of moral responsibility in each and every one of us. And the truth is that we have to remember, the truth is that uh, we are human beings. We are not animals. And something that is gloriously joyful about being a human being is getting to choose many, many times a day getting to choose and express our own choice of how to act every moment and how to respond to circumstances. We can act courageously. We can act nobly. We can act generously. We can act compassionately. We can act thoughtfully. Or we can act selfishly and uh, cruelly and without thought and uh, instinctively. But these are choices we have that no animal from an elephant to a goldfish has. This is a phenomenal thing. And so what the, the mental health industry has tended to do, and yes, I'm sure, that, you know, I'm sure some of you are in that area and, and do a great job, but in general what the mental health industry does is remove responsibility for our fate, re removing responsibility for our actions, and uh, placing it on something external, always external, always something outside. That is really not what is in any way biblical. Uh, it's not what leads to greater human happiness and societal success. None of those things. I want you to stop at my website at rabbidaniellappin.com, would you? And uh, visit the store where Susan and I have uh, two resources that we've created. One is for children, but 
you'll be surprised at how much as an adult you'd get out of it. You know, you might be reading it to a child or a grandchild or whatever it is, but like those uh, like those animated movies, those very clever animated movies from Disney or from Pixar, uh, where there is a, uh, a strong um, touch of interest for the adults as well. That's what we've tried to do with a, a colorful children's book on the alphabet. And uh, for an adult's book, uh, Buried Treasure, Life Lessons from the Lord's Language, where we've uh, given you something with uh, where each chapter provides not only an opportunity for introspection, but a real opportunity to share something of substance uh, and something that is true, not the kind of uh, mishmash of feel-goodism that you get from pop psychology today, but uh, but the real feel good what what genuinely uh, results in a in a warm surge of of happiness that flows up inexplicably from inside one uh, that comes from a spiritual joy and we uh, we explain a lot of that and provide the fuel for that in a book called buried treasure life lessons from the lord's language uh, which you can see on our website at rabbidaniellappin.com so hop over there take a look at that and i'll be right back with you revealing how the world really works this is rabbi daniel lappin on demand on the blaze radio network matt walsh the issue is confronting them. It's not just for their own sake, but for the sake of all the people they're leading astray. So, for instance, Jen Hatmaker, when she gets up there and speaks heresy and says gay marriage is holy, sin is holy, even if I could contact her directly, that doesn't do any good for the people that have been led astray by her. Matt Walsh. Available on demand anytime at theblaze.com slash radio. Welcome back to Rabbi Daniel Lappin On Demand, only on the Blaze Radio Network. Welcome back, everybody. It is the Rabbi Daniel Lappin Show, where your rabbi reveals how the world really works. And um, more than that, more than that for today, I'm also your rabbi, who reminds you that the more that things change, the more you need to depend upon those things that never change, which is what makes a new book out uh, particularly striking for me. Now, this falls under the category of your rabbi saving you time. I mean, just think of all the good things that I bring you on this show. Did you realize that I also save you time? Because one of the uh, regular columnists for the New York Times, a guy called Thomas Friedman, um, has a new book out. And uh, this particular book is being hailed all over the place. And it would be very understandable if, as a result of the various reviews and comments and mentions of it, you'd feel obliged to run out and buy it and devote several valuable hours of your life to reading it. The book's called Thank You for Being Late, An Optimist's Guide to Thriving in the Age of Accelerations by Thomas L. Friedman. And um, what's the book about? Well, I'm saving you several hours of your life, by the way, just to, to clarify. If you ever wondered what the actual value is that you get from this show, I like to think that you are informed. I like to think you're even occasionally entertained. 
but nothing compares to my invaluable and indispensable service to you when I save you time. I'm saving you the time. You do not have to read Thomas Friedman's new book. You just do not have to have to do that. All you need to know about thank you for being late, I'm about to tell you. So when you're at some fashionable party or a gathering of smart people and uh, you find that people are talking about Thomas Friedman's new book, by all means, chime in. Go right ahead. And uh, what you can say is you can say, look, uh, let me give you in a nutshell uh, Friedman's basic hypothesis. It's very simple. This is what the book's about. And by the way, that's one of the ways to write a book. I mean, if, if you want to write a book, if you're thinking of writing a book and you cannot uh, put down in one sentence on the back of a business card what the book is about, you need to do more thinking. And so uh, from the point of view of Thomas Friedman being an experienced and uh, capable writer, uh, this part is good. The book is, um, and, and this is what you can tell people at that cocktail party, you can say, well, yes, I mean, I understand, obviously, Friedman's book is uh, about uh, three relentless forces that are shaping our world. Number one is the, the rapid development of technology changing almost every day. Number two, the growing forces of globalization. And number three, severe climate change. <laughs> That's right. Uh, those are his three things. And he's written an entire book based on the fact that we've got to come to terms with the fact that globalization is becoming more rapid, technology development is becoming more rapid, and climate, severe, pardon me, severe climate change becoming more rapid. And in a nutshell, his answer is get used to it. You've got to, got to adapt it. Okay, fine. Well, uh, in my book, Thou Shall Prosper, which uh, to date has sold many, many more copies than Thomas Friedman's book has sold. Well, I know that's not fair because uh, his book is uh, fairly new, so um, we can't really give it uh, the same thing. But I'm just, I'm just joking. Uh, in, in my book, I talk about coping with change. And the way to cope with change is to remember that the more that things change, the more you have to depend on those things that never change. And so um, when it comes to technological change, all true. But uh, having technology-free relationships with people important in your life, uh, that doesn't change. So the fact that, uh, that you know, yesteryear I, uh, I, I would be approached by a waiter in my club bearing a silver platter on which rested a card, and he would say, uh, Rabbi Lappin, there is a uh, visitor for you in the hallway, uh, or whether I now have a phone that beeps, buzzes, clinks, and, and whirs, and, and uh, groans because somebody's trying to get hold of me, nothing's changed. So, yes, uh, it, I, I would... I, this would be my critique of the book. It's all very nice to say these are all the changes, get used to it, but uh, it's really much more helpful to remember that the more that things change, the more we need to depend on those things that never change. And that doesn't make an appearance in Thomas Friedman's book at all, not at all. And so whether it's uh, globalization, yeah, fine, okay, fine. Fact is, there is such a thing called local as well. That doesn't change. Technology change, yes, there's such a thing as direct person-to-person -person interaction, communication, and relationship. That doesn't change. 
And as far as uh, the rapid, severe climate change is concerned, um, yeah, he's just plain wrong on that one. So uh, there it is, saving you lots and lots of time, because I do teach that the more that things change, the more we need to depend on those things that never change. Now, one of the things that never changes is the Hebrew language. Yes, there are new words that have to be introduced for things like computers, uh, electronic circuit boards, jet planes, and so on. But in terms of uh, the language itself, it's the only language on the planet that hasn't changed in 3,000 years. Right? There is no other language like that. And by the way, if you say Chinese, uh, you need to just go back and research that, and you'll see that that isn't true. Uh, Greek, totally different. As a matter of fact, uh, I remember the first time I um, traveled to Israel with my father, it was on a propeller plane, and we stopped in uh, Athens for refueling. And um, we all had to fill out forms, and my father filled out his form in his um, scholarly uh, Greek from the days when, as a student, he was studying Homer's Iliad and the Odyssey. And... um, and they got very upset with him because they didn't recognize it. It was the Greek customs officials at Athens airport had no idea what he was writing because the language has changed. Hebrew, however, <coughs> a a um, a schoolboy in the streets of Tel Aviv can read the words written by Jeremiah the prophet, and it's nothing's changed, nothing's happened, and so. The only language that hasn't changed is, in fact, Hebrew, which makes it interesting because it probably, therefore, contains certain elemental truths. And that is uh, the entire subject of my book, uh, Buried Treasure, Life Lessons from the Lord's Language. But uh, the example that I, I wanted to give you is the idea of a handshake. Think about this. When strangers meet throughout the Western world, and today it's been adopted everywhere, it's almost universal. You each put out your right hand and shake hands. People do that all the time, right? But where does that come from? I mean, why don't we rub elbows or rub knees or, uh, or, or, or you know, touch foreheads or something? Where does this thing come from from putting out the right hand? Well, Let me first of all debunk uh, one of the most uh, common and uh, false explanations for the handshake. And that is that uh, what what happens is that when people would meet on the highway, they were on foot or they were on horseback or whatever, and uh, in order to uh, prevent them attacking each other, they would each, in greeting, cross clasp one another's right hands, and that way neither could reach for his sword. Well, uh, this is manifestly nonsense, because you just think about it. Uh, Most of us are, you know, while we may be right-handed, that doesn't mean we cannot handle a knife or a dagger or a short sword with our left hand. And so if I'm firmly clasping, clasping my adversary's right hand, wouldn't he be surprised? when I lunge forward and with my left hand drive a knife uh, deep up into his... All right, enough of that. But uh, you get the idea. It's complete nonsense. The idea that by holding one another's right hands an attack is impossible is silly. And so if that's the case, what is the real explanation for a handshake? Well, you've got to remember that uh, the most 
uh, influential book in the shaping of Western civilization is the Bible. And you also have to remember that uh, you don't have to go back very long when educated people knew Hebrew. Hebrew, Latin, Greek were, were classical languages that people knew, and particularly Hebrew, people wanted to understand the Bible in the original. That's what they did. And so uh, uh, how did handshake work? Well, how about I tell you that coming right back, okay? Uh, a reminder, if you would, that book I re alluded to, Buried Treasure, Life Lessons from the Lord's Language. Please read about it on my website. If you've never read it, if you don't have it, uh, I think it'll provide you with something really useful, not only in terms of introspection, but uh, also in terms of conversation and uh, uh, things that most people have absolutely no idea of. And so take a look at that. And also, for those of you who actually are interested, we, we produced something that's nominally a, a children's book, the alphabet book. And the interesting thing, though, is that we did it with an eye for adults. Um, like, like everyone over the years, we've been charmed by some of the animated movies that have come out that, are, that contain very clever little uh, plays and little uh, jokes on the adult level because, you know, the adults bringing their kids to the movies uh, will will be tickled and amused by those as well. So we decided to do the same thing with the alphabet book. It's perfectly acceptable as a gift for a young person. But for those of you who are actually interested in getting a little bit of a glimpse into the structure of Hebrew, uh, go for it. It's, it's a lot of fun. So take a look at the alphabet book. Take a look at... Uh, Buried Treasure, Life Lessons from the Lord's Language, both of them at rabbidaniellappin.com. Uh, quick break, and I'll come back and tell you where the handshake really came from. Your rabbi, back in a moment. Ancient solutions to modern problems. This is Rabbi Daniel Lappin, on demand on the Blaze Radio Network. Fox Sexton. I was willing to say, all right, we'll move forward. We won. Winning is what matters. We won. Let's let them have their their safe spaces and their sit-ins and their cry-ins and all that stuff. But as long as they show some basic decency and respect, we won't sit around and mock the left. Well, it lasted less than 24 hours. Buck Sexton. Weekdays, noon to 3 p.m. Eastern on the Blaze Radio Network. Welcome back to the Blaze Radio Network On Demand with Rabbi Daniel Lappin. Your Rabbi, Rabbi Daniel Lappin, welcome back to the show. Great to have you here. Reminding you that the more that things change, the more we need to depend on those things that never change. One of those, the Hebrew language. Origin of handshakes. Where does that come from? All right, well, uh, what we need to point out is that in Hebrew, uh, compound words have meaning, unlike in English. So, for instance, in English, if I... Uh, teach somebody what a carpet is, that it's a upholstered floor covering, uh, I've not in any way given them any insight into what a car is or what a pet is. Uh, no connection at all. In Hebrew, it's not like that. Uh, we break down words into their uh, elements, and those elements convey serious and significant meaning as to the compound word. Uh, one of the words for a friend is the Hebrew word you did. And uh, that word is spelt Udalid Udalid. 
even if you don't know any Hebrew, you'd hear that there is a repetition in what I said. Yud Dalet, Yud Dalet. In other words, the two-letter word Yud Dalet, which by the way means a hand, followed by a repetition of that same word Yud Dalet again, in other words, hand next to hand, produces the Hebrew word for friend. And that, my friends, is the simple, straightforward rule. You all know Occam's razor. The simplest explanation is usually the right one. And in this case, uh, it happens to be very much the right one, which is that in Hebrew, the word for friend, or one of the words for friends, um, is simply the two words hand next to hand, 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 in juxtaposition, or in other words, the picture of a handshake. So uh, the the old imagery, by the way, of friendship, long long before, I mean, ages long ago, used to be a picture of two hands clasped together. And that had nothing to do with a handshake. That had to do with the Hebrew word of friend, hand, hand. And so the handshake came out of that. But that's not all. Uh, there is uh, even more fascinating and interesting stuff uh, about hand. Let me, let me do this. Um, I'm looking at my hand, and I'm saying to myself, this hand, a remarkable tool, right? It can pick up an eggshell. Uh, it can perform neurosurgery. It can paint a picture, you know, if, if its owner possessed the talents. But at the same time, the same hand can wield a, a, a tool or drive a tractor, There'd be nothing to stop me this afternoon wielding a 15-pound sledgehammer to break up some concrete and then coming into the house this evening and using the same hand to write a carefully calligraphied letter where each letter is finely shaped with a nib, a pen with ink. It's remarkable. It really is a remarkable tool, this thing at the end, end of our arms. And I ask myself now, what is it that makes this thing a hand rather than a paw? Now, if it was a paw, it's primarily just used for smacking things or clawing things. But what is it that gives it its creativity? What is it that lets it do all kinds of fine things? Right, well, you look at your hand carefully and wiggle your fingers a bit and you'll realize that's it. Digital dexterity. The fact that we can move each finger independently. And that's why you can hold a pair of chopsticks if you're going to eat some Chinese food. Or uh, why it is that um, uh, you can hold a pen. Or why you can type at a computer keyboard or paint a picture or do anything else, whether it's fasten your shoelaces, brush your shoes, whatever you do, digital dexterity is the key. In other words, the essence of a hand is its ability to allow the fingers to move. Okay, fine. I'm still looking at my hand, and I'm saying, now, what is it exactly that allows my fingers to move? And the answer, well, that's easy enough, joints, right? The joints. Okay, so now we're coming down to the, the bottom line, which is that the essence of a hand is its joints. What makes my hand my hand 
is the fact that it's got joints. By the way, how many joints does it have? Well, count them. There you are. You'll see three of them on each finger and two on the thumb. Fourteen joints in total. Well, why is this interesting? Because in Hebrew, every letter of the alphabet uh, is assigned a different numerical value. It would be almost as if uh, A equals 1, B equals 2, C equals 3, D equals 4. And if that was the case, it would be kind of neat if we'd write down the word for a year, Y-E-A-R. And then if we added it up and it came out to be the number of days in a year, wouldn't that be cool? But of course it isn't. Y is 25, E is 5, A is 1, R is whatever it is, but it sure doesn't come to 365. Uh, You won't be shocked to hear that Hebrew is very different. In Hebrew, the numbers actually mean something. And so, for instance, the Hebrew word for pregnancy has the numerical value of 351, excuse me, of 271, which is the mean gestational period for the human female. In other words, if you draw a graph, you'll find that some women give birth after 265 days, 268 days. Some women give birth after 274, 276. But the uh, majority of the people in, um, in, at the top of the curve, at least in my wife's various books on pregnancy, uh, the majority of women give birth. That's right, 271 days. The Hebrew numerical value of the Hebrew word for pregnancy and um, the Hebrew word for a year, well, it's shana. And what does that add up to? Well, it adds up to 355. Too bad. It'd be nice if it was 365, right? But, oh, wait a second. The Hebrew calendar is not the same as the sidereal calendar. The Hebrew calendar operates on the lunar cycle. And the mean lunar cycle is 29 days, 12 hours, 44 minutes and 3.3 seconds. And when you take 12 of those for a year, guess what you get? That's right, 355 days. And so the Hebrew word for pregnancy is number day, Hebrew word for years, and so on is many, many, many Hebrew words have a numerical value linked to their significance. Well, you won't be shocked to hear that the Hebrew word for hand has a numerical value of, well, you guessed it, 14, of course, which is the numerical essence of a hand. You can't really go wrong with that, can you? And uh, and that's a little bit of uh, one of the things that never changes. Now, I really only told you all of that because I wanted to tell you some more things uh, from the Hebrew language about family and about money. Those are, are two topics very much at the heart of uh, my thinking. The reason is, by the way, is that um, if your life is good family-wise and money-wise, you are a very happy person. You have nothing to complain about, right? If your marriage, your kids, your whole family is just a source of joy to you, where the relationships are good and strong and solid and harmonious and happy-making, joyful, uh, and you don't have money problems, what a lucky person you are. Some people will say, well, yeah, what about health? Yeah, uh, however... Um, you won't be shocked to hear that among those people who understand holistic health and and have an open eye on medical statistics, you won't be shocked to hear that people whose families are in good shape and whose finances are in good shape tend to have far better health than people who have problems in those areas. So that's why I just focus on those things. 
family, get your family into good shape, get your finances into good shape, you've got nothing to worry about. <laughs> Life is good at that point. And so for that reason, a lot of the resources that we create at our company, at our publishing company, a lot of those resources are focused very much on bringing practical application to uh, those ideas, tr spiritual strategies that you can employ uh, to enhance both family and finances. Obviously, relationship with God is uh, another very important one, and we touch on that as well. All of that uh, available at my website, rabbidaniellappin.com. Take a look at the book, Buried Treasure, Life Lessons from the Lord's Language. I'd like you to take a look at that. And also, uh, if you have interest in Hebrew, um, don't go by without looking at the alphabet book because it's it's colorful, it's eye-catching, and it's actually amazingly educational. Uh, there is information there you simply won't get anywhere else. So take a look at that as well. So that means, my good friends, that uh, we are as, as far as we're going to go with today's show. And uh, it means it's not I don't get to talk with you for another entire week. But uh, until then, please share the podcast. I'd really appreciate you showing it around to other folks. And, uh, and we'll be together a week from now. Until then, I pray that you will enjoy a week of prosperity and family and good health, all of those good things together. Until next week, God bless. The Blaze On Demand. This is Rabbi Daniel Lappin.